Uh, hi, my name is Ross Payton here with Roleplaying Public Radio, and here we're in a uh, group interview with uh, David Carter, Earl Fischel, and Tom McLaughlin. Did I? Is that right? Pretty close, McLaughlin. Yeah. McLaughlin. I'm sorry. Uh, and no he, yeah, uh, here talking about Mindstorm Labs' new game, Alpha Omega. Um, so first off, why don't we uh, just go ahead and uh, introduce listeners to the game, those who aren't familiar with it. So give us the elevator pitch for Alpha Omega. Describe it in a nutshell. Who wants the honors? <laughs> <laughs> I can give my, uh, my one-minute con spiel if you want. Yeah, yeah, that, that's perfect. That's an elevator pitch type. Sure. Sounds good. Okay, well, Alpha Omega is a uh, kind of a dystopian, post-apocalyptic future Earth. It takes place in the year 2280, um, about 200 years after a whole bunch of bad stuff happened uh, to the Earth. A lot of natural disasters, which led to resource shortages and uh, eventually war that kind of brought civilization to its to its knees. And um, probably about the 10% of population that survived uh, sought refuge in. Um, a few cities, some um, that we like to call arcologies, they're kind of these giant vertical cities where populations have congregated uh, to build vertically instead of expanding outwards because of the, the dangers that lie in between the cities and uh, what's called the wilds, which is basically everything outside the city where a lot of uh, remnants of the wars, a lot of biological weapons were used, chemical weapons, mutagenic weapons that have, uh, they were quite effective during the wars and uh, what remained of them has really wrought havoc on uh, wildlife and all the uh, environments in between the cities. All right, all right. Um, <clears throat> on top of that, you have two warring alien races that have been coming to Earth every 10,000 years to to fight a massive war, and they've been misrepresented by history as being angels and demons, but in the world, they're actually um, two warring alien factions. So this is going to be the first time that humans and some of the various other humanoid species that have evolved on Earth will be able to affect the outcome of the of the war. All right. Uh, so. Where did uh, Alpha Omega come from? Could you go into uh, what led to its creation and um, how it came to be? Earl, you want to cover that one? Yeah, for sure, man. <clears throat> so it, uh, it all started in 1994. Now, I won't go through like, the boring <laughs> All right, fair Basically, it's, it's sort of like a... Um, the original idea was an inspiration that came from ancient astronaut theory and oh, um, right, right. yeah some I was reading guys like Eric von Daniken and Zechariah Sitchin and those kind of cats and uh, thought that that was really an interesting idea at the, this is like man uh, you know 12 years ago so I was in high school at the time thought it was an intriguing idea um, for a role-playing game and uh, you know we all grew up playing RPGs and that was sort of like the fundamental uh, inspiration was this ancient astronaut theory and then it's blended with um, like Dave said this sort of dystopian future um, the earth sort of fallen apart and uh, and that comes from just that sort of like fascination with post-apocalyptic science fiction so the original sort of like genesis for Alpha Omega was a blending of post-apocalyptic sci-fi fandom with uh, this running into ancient astronaut theory. I see. Um, and it went from there. <laughs> All right. So how did that idea that, um, I'm sure, you know, your notebook of ideas, how did that turn into a game? Uh, at what point did you meet with, you know, Mindstorm Labs, and how did, how did you get the, uh, the ball rolling, so to speak, uh, in actually producing the game? Because it's a really uh, very few RPGs that I've seen have such great, you know, production values and just, uh, it really grabs your attention with the artwork and the uh, text. Um, 
So could you go into a little more of just uh, how you created the uh, the the game itself, writing and getting the artwork and so forth? Um, Tom or David or um, well, Tom, do you want to take a crack at that or? Sure. Yeah, I can start it. Um, <laughs> basically, um, I got involved. Uh, Dave and I had been friends for a long time, and um, we had always talked about starting a, a new company together. And uh, Dave and Earl started working together up in Ottawa, and Dave mentioned to me that he had a friend that had this great idea for a game. And, uh, you know, I was a little skeptical. Uh, it was probably a rehash of, you know, something or other, or not very interesting, but I thought, well, let's meet. So we, uh, I flew up to Canada, and uh, we all had a, had a dinner together and chatted, and it sounded like a really great idea. So we decided to put uh, together a business plan to get the company started, uh, project out kind of what we needed for uh, design and timelines and budgets, and we went out and uh, raised some capital to get the company started and uh, put these guys to work. <laughs> creating uh creating their vision okay all right um did, what uh did anything uh unusual uh, come up in terms of uh, uh, the raising the capital the uh, the creation of the business because uh, i imagine it must be kind of interesting going to potential investors say i got this idea you see we have this we have angels and demons but it's after uh, you know all this devastation and you know there's robots too um <laughs> So uh, well, my uh, my background is in uh, new venture startup and, and yeah. raising money. So um, usually I can I can take an idea to investors and it, it's it's a percentage of the idea and also a percentage of a track record that we have with other uh, with other mm -hmm. projects. So um, basically, you know, you usually try to find a uh, a great team and and hopefully a pretty good idea rather than a really good idea and a bad team. So. Uh, we we tried to assemble a really good team, and um, everybody thought the idea had a lot of legs, and uh, we we went they went from there. Okay, that's good. Um, one one thing that sort of jumped out at me when I was going through it is the 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 philosophy. You know, uh, in terms of you have a very what some people would call a very crunchy game. There's a lot of options for characters. Um, you know, characters are very complex. Which seems to be sort of a, you know, when you look at other games like fourth editions, trying to say, oh, we're streamlining, <laughs> make it simple, we're the, et cetera, et cetera. And plus, indie uh, RPGs are coming down there. They're always emphasizing how um, it, it seems a different uh, design philosophy. Uh, um, what is? Yeah, I the, think. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I think where we were going with that is that we wanted to create a game where not only could you create the exact character that you want but also that when it's your character's turn you can do a lot more in a single game turn so we decided to go with point-based character creation rather than class and level-based character mm -hmm. progression um, just so you know if you want to be uh, a magic user or a wielder as we call it in Alpha Omega and still wear a suit of power armor and carry a rocket launcher then you can do that <laughs> um, so that's kinda of where we went with with character creation we just we wanted to have a lot of options so um, as you play through the game character development can kind of take many different directions you can focus on what we call core qualities that will feed into other game elements and character elements that um, will um, let me start over there's um, our core qualities are, are kind of the foundation of um, our characters and um, if you don't, you have choices. You can take like a skill-based character, and then you can spend all your character development points on, um, you know, on skills. You can become very specialized, or you can take a broader approach and kind of build on your core qualities, which will allow you to um, do a, a variety of of different things. But uh, they lead you to to have better dice, where skills just add bonuses to rolls. So it's it's. It just gives you a lot of um, of options. The as you progress, you get to move up into 
um, stronger dice pools, as we call them. So your character will typically start out with D4s and D6s at the beginning of the game, but if you put your points into core qualities, you get to use better dice. And um, the way our game mechanics system works, it's, it's kind of unique you're always in control of how many dice you want to spend or, or roll during each turn. So if you do choose to spend um, your development points on core qualities, you get um, to advance up through the dice pools and eventually you get to use D10s, D12s, D20s and um, you're capable of doing a lot more in one turn. Ross, uh, one thing we tried to do with the system was to create as, as a, a depth that could answer questions that players might have about the game. Right, right. But could also sort of be as, as sort of deep as you wanted to. But one thing we tried to emphasize in gameplay is that it's, it's really up to the players and the, uh, the GM on really how complex they want to make it. I so if, if there's a question that comes up about how to deal with the situation, the mechanics are there to answer it. Mm-hmm. But it's not if it you know, slows down gameplay or storytelling, if that's what they want to focus on, they don't have to, they don't have to worry about that. I see. Okay. Um, now, uh, you mentioned this dice mechanics, a very, uh, uh, also grabbed my attention, uh, of the graduating going from the smaller to the uh, larger dice. Um, so, uh, Earl or David, would you like to talk more about this, this core mechanic? Because it's a, uh, when you look at other games, I mean, usually you have to roll over or roll under. It's a pretty simple it's a pretty different mechanic. Um, would you like to talk more about the how you came up with that and uh, your again more of your philosophy behind it? Sure. I mean, we um, we wanted characters to become very powerful, and we always described it as wanting to give the game a matrix feel to it. So things like dodging bullets, or if you have the right equipment, to deflect bullets, or to be able to dive through the air while shooting at multiple targets all in one game turn we, we had to figure out a way to do that and um, you know we tried a, a lot of different approaches but the graduated or progressive dice pool system that we came up with we thought it it really worked well um, <clears throat> it still is kind of a, a pass fail system for a lot of our checks so you you will have a, a DR that you have to achieve combat is where we kind of stray from that um, where if you roll more of your dice in your dice pool not only can you definitely hit that that passing difficulty rating but you can exceed it by uh, a significant amount and the way our weapons work the higher your roll is above the DR to hit the more times you actually um, like strike a creature and, and do more damage so we at the at the end game, we wanted characters to be able to like fire full, fully automatic bursts and hit with every round of ammunition and really like be able to to cause a lot of damage. Interesting. Um, again, you mentioned the Matrix again as another sort of influence or something you were sort of inspired by, uh, as well as the uh, the alien astronauts and the uh, arcologies. What are some of the other influences or sources of inspiration you looked at when you were designing uh, Alpha Omega? Um, Earl's been kind of quiet. Uh, does uh, he <laughs> Yeah, yeah, sure, man. It's it really runs the gamut. I mean, when we started working together on the project, Dave and I, we were lucky because our our likes and dislikes when it comes to science fiction, fantasy, and horror are very much in line. Um, the earliest inspirations, um, you know, like you mentioned, uh, like the Matrix, but we always sort of describe the game as like a kind of a Mad Max uh, meets Blade Runner sort of world where you have these, um, these extremes that fans of, of, you know, anything in science fiction, fantasy, and horror will find something that they like because we like so much within that range too. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like uh, any <laughs> any sort of like '90s sci-fi horror movie is is in there somewhere. You know, we're just such like fans of that. Right. Um, <clears throat> it's all sort of like it's all there to be found. Whether you uh, you know 
whether you want the slick urban feel of something like like Blade Runner, um, or you want something raw and wild like Mad Max. Mm. Those are sort of like really good and obvious inspirations from very, very early on. There's also, depending on how deep you get into the mythology behind the game, there's a lot of influence that actually is borrowed. Uh, to say it's religious influence is, is not right, um, but the, uh, the background that we have as writers sort of lends itself to that. Um, understanding, uh, you know, mythology in general, uh, we, we borrowed, drew a lot of influence from those kinds of things as well. So there's, mm. it's a real mashup. I see. Um, One thing can I can add that, uh, yeah, yeah. that Earl has always um, had a good approach to it in, in saying that the game is built, the core rulebook is built to be a, a platform where can uh, can take the game in whatever direction they want. So if they want a really clean sci-fi game, they can do that. If they, you know, if they want a horror-based game, then they can take it in that direction. And we're trying to, with the core rulebook, we tried to touch on a lot of different points that we'll be adding a lot of depth to in future supplements. But we we tried to give enough in the core rulebook that. Um, it's a solid base, but it still leaves a lot of room to uh, to grow and, and take it where the GM wants to. Yeah, there's really like kind of three pillars to Alpha Omega. Like there's there's sci-fi in the uh, you know in that like urban future sense, mm-hmm. and there's fantasy in the wilderness sense, mm-hmm. and and there's horror, which sort of runs across the. Uh, across both in the world so really those three things are those general genres have been so influential in general like mm-hmm. you know that's it's it's borrowed and built on all three i see now you mentioned you, you, your writer's background gave you uh an edge or uh an advantage in designing this could you uh uh both go into more of your background as writers uh what other things have you worked on that we might know about or haven't heard of so <laughs> my my only other like publishing credit is a is a textbook uh, contribution on transnational corporations, which actually, if you look at the game, <laughs> it does lend itself to the. Uh, there's the a lot of that in there. there. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, transnational crime and uh, those sorts of influences. But my, you know, the bulk of my writing is, has been uh, academic, political science primarily, which I see plays well into the game. Okay. And don't forget the uh, the guide to world domination. And there was a test in uh, print-on-demand publishing, which was a, <laughs> a tongue-in-cheek guide to world domination for project managers, which somehow <laughs> got picked up on last summer. <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, who picked it up? Or um, Well, when we, when we were doing the, the whole Ethan Haas thing... Yeah. And, uh, you know, our world got turned on its head and people started investigating us. Yeah. Uh, you know, that was dug out immediately that my name was attached to this book that was published on Lulu uh, like two years ago or something like that. So uh, some some <laughs> blogger somewhere discovered that and shared that. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. David, what about you? Uh, what's your background as a writer? Um... Pretty thin. <laughs> um, I'd have to say most of the the writing that I've done has been actually for for running D and D campaigns or other role playing campaigns, and I always preferred to write my own storylines, my own adventures, rather than kind of buying the off the shelf mm-hmm. supplements. And, and um, I always really, really enjoyed reading. Uh, both fantasy and science fiction, and like to make uh, the adventures for my players as you know as interesting and unique as I could, and that's about it. <laughs> All right. Um, so, how did you divide up work? I mean, who when uh, I look at the book, you know, how can I tell uh, what's David's part or what's Earl's part? Or uh, did Tom help out any on the actual writing of the book or editing? Or 
I did absolutely nothing. <laughs> That's not true. Tom was, no, a, no. Tom was an invaluable editor, critic, taskmaster. <laughs> no? I just stood behind and cracked the whip. Ah, uh, okay. Um, but David, how did you uh, break up the writing? Uh, are there any particular sections that you favored while the other guy worked on something else? or? Um, well, it was it was a pretty intense uh, time period when we were writing the book. Um, at the beginning, certainly Earl focused on on the setting material, and I focused on the mechanics. Um, when we made the decision to to create a new mechanic system, we knew it was going to be uh, a lot of work and a lot of testing. So Earl focused a lot on the, the setting, kind of the background, um, a lot of the locations, and and NPCs in the game and, and I took a crack at the, the mechanics and then as we're going through it we just bounced ideas off each other every day we're sitting beside each other um, you know Monday through Friday at the office and then um, talking over Skype as we wrote <laughs> after supper every night and okay. uh, yeah we basically locked ourselves once we got committed to the project like full time Dave and I were effectively locked in a room together we had our office space and our desks were like we we didn't we opted for not facing each other which was like a good thing but we were you know we were we were in a square room just the two of us and uh each staring at our screens and writing so it was uh we fed you and uh, we were fed and and watered and such but yeah we were uh like like Dave says, we did divide it early on as sort of like setting to me, mechanics to Dave. But then, you know, as time went on, we uh, both overlapped completely. So, hmm. um, so what was playtesting it like? Once you you know you banged out these these new mechanics and the basic setting information, um, how? Did you play test? I mean, how many people were? I mean, the the credits list quite a few people, um, or you know, a good number of people. Um, so, could you go yeah. into that a little? Playtesting, in a word, was humiliating. <laughs> um, no, it was very humbling. I mean, you, we when we put our first draft of what we thought was not a complete game, but. Um, a solid playable draft of the game. Um, we managed to track down several groups of playtesters. Uh, one of them were the people that we played Dungeons and Dragons with, or Shadowrun, or whatever uh, RPG we were, we had going on. Um, we also put some posters up around town, um, various hobby stores, looking for groups that were willing to help us, and um, we were lucky enough to find two really strong, really experienced groups that just loved RPGs to death and they're, they were just brilliant guys that uh, floored us with their their knowledge. I mean, we, we had a really good idea of what we wanted and they just helped us get there. It, it just wasn't always comforting. <laughs> there was a lot of... Uh, <laughs> Constructive criticism, you know, they, they did exactly what we asked them to do. They didn't baby us and, uh, and say, oh, you know, you guys, you're already on the right track. They were like, here's what's wrong and why, take it or leave it. And uh, a lot of their advice, we, we took it to heart. We, we talked about everything that they they brought up. And in the end, we made the final decision of, of what we changed and what we wouldn't. But uh, invaluable help. And, and that's reflected in our, our thank yous, too. What did the playtesters say both, uh, and what did you, you know, accept and what didn't you accept? I mean, what did you learn from the playtesters? Man, that's a loaded question. <laughs> um, I could rephrase it. No, no, it's good. I'm just trying to think of the best way to answer it. Were you um, it was good, man. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the like I was saying, the setting material was was kind of not up for negotiation. We we knew right. what we wanted. Um, th I mean, they did give us some comments about narrowing the focus, and uh, but like we mentioned earlier, we wanted the game to be a platform that could be taken wherever you want. Um, in terms of mechanics, 
there was a lot of, of changes made for sure. Um, both adding layers of difficulty, but also, uh, or complexity, sorry, but also removing some in other places, uh, just balancing it to make sure that the kind of the, the atmosphere and feeling throughout the game was, um, kind of at the same level. One of the big things I think that we got from the playtesters as well was that everyone approaches role-playing games differently and everybody wants something different from a game. So building a game that will please everyone is an impossibility, you know? Right. Um, the most complex system will be too complex. The most washed-out system is too washed-out. Um, so really what what we decided very early on was that we were going to make a game that we wanted to play ourselves and we were lucky because the playtesters that we were um, we had involved who were helping us out they were all very candid with their opinions and and very very uh, very open when it comes to you know uh, expressing those opinions yeah exactly which was great you know and that's exactly what we asked them to do <coughs> you know so we knew that uh, the approach that we were taking fundamentally to the game, both in terms of the setting and in terms of the mechanics, being flexible, being open, having layers of optional complexity, was the right approach because it allows people to take or leave what they will, you know? So that was one of the, I think, one of the most important things we actually got out of playtesting. All right, that's a good lesson to learn. Um, so, you know, after you... Uh, one thing you've also mentioned um, that earlier was Ethan Haas, and that was actually, like, I guess for many people, that's a name I've heard before I even heard of Alpha Omega, because obviously earlier this year I followed the Cloverfield uh, ARG, the alternate reality game, and his name popped up. Uh, so why don't you tell us a little bit about Ethan Haas and the uh, ARG? The, uh, the web campaign, viral marketing campaign you had for that. Tom, you want to take that one, Tom? Yeah, <laughs> Yeah, sure. Um, really, the, um, the viral marketing campaign started um, as an idea, as a way to, to get people introduced to the sort of themes and the atmospheres that are going to be present in Alpha Omega. So we were working with our design team on what we could do, and we wanted to create a, create a series of websites that was sort of be almost like breadcrumbs that would lead people to the launch of our main site in August, which would sort of uh, roll in with our uh, presence at Gen Con that year. So we started with the uh, Ethan Haas's white website, and Ethan Haas has a pretty, you know, he plays into the mythology of the game, so we wanted to pull elements from that. And it was interesting, we launched the, uh, we launched the site in late June, and we started posting it on all kinds of different sites, um, post-apocalyptic sites, um, goth sites, RPG sites, just, just things like, hey, check this out. This is a pretty interesting website. I don't know what this is, you know, all that sort of stuff. And we were getting what, at the time, we were pretty happy with the response rate we were getting. We were getting, you know, in the tens of thousands of hits, and uh, we thought that was a pretty good success. And we figured the, the puzzles were hard enough that it would take people until about August to crack them all, and uh, we'd be all set. Um, at some point, um, as best as we can tell, a website, uh, a film website from the UK um, decided to connect us to Cloverfield, and, and that started at the launch of Transformers. There was that, if you remember, there was that trailer for Cloverfield right, right. that didn't have any title or anything. And actually, it's kind of a weird coincidence. The first time I heard about it, I was coming out of Transformers. And uh, I got an alert on my BlackBerry that um, there is a Google alert about us on the web. And this website had decided to say Ethan Haas was the viral marketing campaign for Cloverfield. And then it just, over the weekend, it just exploded. Every website ran with it. <laughs> and it was kind of interesting because a lot of the websites that ran with it were ones that I had contacted offline to talk to them about the campaign. And a lot of them weren't interested. And, uh, and then all of a sudden, one of them ran with it and they all went. And, I mean, we were, it was kind of interesting and kind of scary how that works on the internet, that this sort of unverified story just ran, just kind of exploded. And, I mean, it even got picked up by the mainstream, mainstream press. We were on the front page of the USA Today the next Monday, um, just, you know, 15, yeah, 15, 16 million hits on the website. Wow. Um, tens of thousands of people registering their email addresses. 
Um, I, <laughs> one interesting side note, it, it appears a lot of people surf the web a lot at work. <laughs> you, see, you see a lot of emails come in from like government agencies and different places. <laughs> but wow. uh, and so it just, it just sort of took a life of its own, and all of a sudden we had websites dedicated to solving all the puzzles you know, within like a week. And uh, we were like, well, you know, we had wanted this campaign to last until August. So we said, well, let's embrace it. And uh, we, just, we just kept developing it. We uh, launched a lot of different sites. We had um, phone numbers people could call. We actually contacted people in real life with documents that had hidden messages, um, all kinds of different things to kind of build up to the launch. And it was kind of a, it was kind of a weird thing. Um, you know, Paramount pulled our videos from YouTube. So that just sort of led to it. So it, it kind of created this thing where people either believed it or they didn't or they had their own theory or, you know, there's a third gunman, you know, that sort of thing. So <laughs> it, we, just, we just let it go where it wanted to and uh, tried to do our best. At, what's that? Not that we could have even stopped it if we wanted to. <laughs> yeah, we, we, tried to, we tried to do our best. Even, the, even as soon as it exploded, we had a sort of an anti-Ethan Haas site, the Mezzan uh, website. Um, Ethan Haas was wrong, and we tried to post information on there to let people know we weren't connected to Cloverfield without sort of stepping out from behind the curtain and saying, hey, it's us, and ruining the game. Like, we tried to post, because people were asking us, does January 18th have anything to do with the game? So we went on there and blatantly said, that date has nothing to do with us, and all that Although stuff. it but, did turn out to be our launch date. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in the end, that turned out from our printer because of a delay. That turned out to be our launch date for the game. So, so that was kind of kind of creepy, actually, <laughs> how that all worked out. But yeah, it was a lot of fun. I mean, it it, it was great because it even got even uh, the exposure that it got probably got more exposure for a tabletop role playing game in the mainstream than probably ever. So you know, we got a lot of emails from people that said, "Look, I haven't played one of these games in a long time, but." this has got my attention and I want to come back and try it again. Or, you know, I've never even heard of a tabletop role-playing game. So that was, that was good. So um, once it was revealed, what kind of reaction did it get? I mean, you talked a little bit about that. Um, did a lot of the people who were, uh, you know, came for the Ethan Haas uh, puzzles, did they, how many of the, what kind of response did you get from the people who stayed or, um, um, it was pretty good. Most people sort of, um, well, one interesting thing was even once we were at Gen Con, we had people walking up to us in the flesh and saying they didn't believe we were real. They, <laughs> they, thought, we were, they thought we were a front for J.J. Abrams or some other project. And, you know, wow. at that point, you're like, man, you know, there's nothing I can do <laughs> to, to prove that we're not. So you just let them enjoy it. And they get their own entertainment out of that. And, and some people... You know, when it came out that it was this game and not uh, something else, um, most people were playing casually anyway and just enjoyed it. The, the ones who were pretty into it is either Cloverfield or something else. The ones that wanted it to be Cloverfield, when they saw that it wasn't, went on to the Cloverfield actual marketing campaign. And the ones that were interested that it was something else continued on with our campaign. All right. Um, so... Overall, what kind of reaction has Alpha Omega uh, received um, in terms of the fan base, uh, the the community? I've read a few reviews that have been mostly positive. Um, obviously, not universally, but you're never going to get that game. That's uh, uh, so. Uh, tell us about the, the the response. Well, I think overall, it's it's been really really good. I mean, people people are recognizing the quality and the amount of effort that that we put into it, the production value. Um, we didn't want to hold back at all. We wanted to make sure that uh, people got uh, a solid game setting, uh, a new set of mechanics. They got a, an attractive-looking book um, that we tried to do differently. You know, the, the layout's different, the navigation is different, and for the most part, that's been very well received and uh, we're we're really excited about where things have going uh, are going our collaborative collaborative workspace the nwsec.com is is starting to to build some uh, momentum Earl was was the the mastermind behind that and um, we're getting some some members of the community kind of submitting their own equipment and creatures and vehicles onto this wiki um, where everybody in the community can use it. Cool. 
And we're also getting ready to, to launch the Creature Manual, which will will uh, provide players with, uh, you know, a lot of, uh, well, 200, over 200 creatures that they can build into their campaigns and adventures to give that much more depth. And it's, it's really going to work to flesh out the details that we allude to in the core rule book, but now we're going to present people with the, uh, the actual creatures and, uh, entities that, um, that they'll be able to encounter in the Alpha Omega world. All right. One of the really good pieces of, of feedback that we've gotten, like the reception, like Dave says, has been, has been really, really good. I, I thought one of the most, uh, kind of complimentary things that we've heard is that, um, people are really happy to have something new and something distinct. I mean, there's, there's obviously a lot, I shouldn't say a lot, but there's obvious similarity between Alpha Omega and many other games out there. That's, you know, that's unavoidable. But, uh, but people have been really happy and willing to share with us their, their like uh, of something brand new. Um, so that's been really, really good feedback. Yeah. As, uh, as one guy said, this is the first RPG my girlfriend wants to play. <laughs> <laughs> really? Interesting. Yeah. yeah, he said she was interested in it. Well, I, uh, my only two cents would be, I, I think the, the, the way I try to measure it is, is if people are having fun playing it. And um, so far, you know, from the feedback we've been able to get from people on our forums and, and other websites and, and meeting retailers uh, at, at, say, like Gamma, in uh, Vegas a few months ago and, and getting their reaction from it. Um, mm-hmm. that's, that's how I like to look at the success of it. And, and so far, majority of that's been really positive. People like the, like the direction that we're going with it and, and they're having fun or they're, they're, their customers are having fun playing it. Interesting. Um, you know, speaking of the direction you're taking, there are a few things. Um, one thing that I think has been almost universally praised, I, I can't find a review that hasn't, been uh, very positive of the artwork, which is just really uh, very rare that you see this level of uh, uh, just you know beautiful art piece of art after beautiful piece of art. Um, could you talk a little bit about the art direction in uh, Alpha Omega? Sure. Um, for the core rulebook, we we decided to uh, to post an ad on conceptart.org to just to see what kind of artists would kind of come out of the woodwork and apply f- for the jobs. I mean, we were we were looking around at a few names. Um, like when we were doing our own research, we found a few people that thought looked really good, and we were contacting them as well. But uh, in the first two weeks, we had the ad up. We got over two hundred applications from artists and. We went through them and, and rated them for various uh, elements of the game that were important, you know, like illustrations, concept design, uh, monsters, equipment, all those kinds of things. And um, we came up with a short list and, and gave them kind of a, a test picture to do. And we went with, uh, with three artists, and they were just phenomenal. It worked really hard. Two of them in particular... Uh, Matt Bradbury and, and Aaron Panagas, they they worked extremely hard. I mean, we really laid it on. They had a lot of work to do in a short amount of time, and we forged a really good relationship with them. And in terms of our direction, uh, the three of us just kind of looked at the work as it came in, and we knew what... Uh, what we wanted the, the world to look like and pretty soon Aaron and Matt just they really had it down and it, it went quite smoothly actually right. and now they may the, have been locked in the room with us <laughs> what's that? <laughs> I said they, they may as well have been locked in the room with us I mean we, we <laughs> talked with them so much while we were writing and, and just going back and forth on every single piece because we, we wanted the game to look good I don't know why people are so like I think it's disappointing when a book especially something that should be so enticing like the sort of like creative enterprise of role playing it really bums me out when books don't look good and there are very few books that I pick up that I go man this book looks really good and I really like the amount of time and effort that these guys put into their artwork and it's not that there aren't loads of super talented artists we got lucky and found 
super talented artists that, like Dave says, we had a really good personal relationship with and who understood the world very, very early on. And we could say to, we could talk to like Matt, just random, for example, and say like, there's a piece in the book where there's, um, there's like a film guy flying over top of a cityscape and we could talk to Matt and say, you know, the city, think of like a city like, like Gotham, but give it like this kind of touch and, uh, you know, this kind of perspective. And Matt would be like, yeah, no problem. And Matt would go to work on it and we'd do a few revisions and it was just like so smooth. So uh, anyway, long story short, like Dave says, we got lucky with uh, really good art. Really yeah, good artists. And with the concepts, I mean, uh, some of the, the characters and uh, the the illustrations, uh, Aaron as well, it's, it's, we give them as much descriptive material as we could and uh, we didn't have all the details sometimes to, to provide. You know, we'd give a general outline for an image or a, a creature or a character and, and that's all we had and it's like they reached into our brain and pulled it out and, and drew it so well and as soon as you, we saw it it was like yeah that's it exactly you you nailed it that is what Alpha Omega should look like and it, it just kept going from there and the interesting thing is uh, you know Earl and I were here in Ottawa Tom was in Florida Matt Bradbury was in the UK um, Aaron Panagas was in St. Louis at the time and our layout guy Sammy Royama um, geez I can't believe we haven't talked about Sam yet he, he's in uh Sackville, New Brunswick. So it was really spread out all over the place, and Skype is is what brought <laughs> us together. <laughs> this poor rule book has been brought to you by Skype. <laughs> yeah, but uh, yeah, Sammy Royama did did the um, the layout, and I've been friends with that guy since I was seven. And Tom and uh, Sam have worked together on other projects before, and he just did a tremendous job on uh, on the layout of the book. We, we couldn't have been happier with it. And we've been fortunate to keep the, that core team, that creative team, working on the creature manual as well. So the if anything, they've they've taken what they've learned on the core manual and raised the bar on really? the on the artwork and the quality of the creature manual. So I I, I think people are gonna be pretty impressed by it. What have yeah, you we'll do our we'll do our best to make sure the, the content is solid in the uh, the creature manual. I mean it's it's gonna be a it's gonna be a fantastic creature manual, but the way it looks, yeah, it's gonna blow your socks off. <laughs> <laughs> it will destroy. Yeah. So um so what have you learned uh, since the main manual in terms of uh, art direction or what have the artists learned? Um, that me and Dave are jerks. <laughs> <laughs> All right, fair enough. No, no, I'm just kidding. That's partially leave it, true. Leave it at that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, we just, we've refined the way we work, you know, like Dave and I have refined the way we write, the way we edit, you know, that kind of thing. And, and that's lent itself to more efficiency overall. Matt and Aaron... Uh, you know, we know each other now personally very well. Mm -hmm. So when when Dave or I say it needs to be cooler, they know what we mean. Um, like, and we say that a lot too. Yeah. Like, this looks <laughs> good, but it, it's not cool enough. <laughs> yeah, this needs to be more savage, and they'll be like, "Yeah, okay, I, I know what you actually mean by that now." All so right. we, we've got actually means ad spikes. <laughs> <laughs> that, that does seem to be shorthand. Yeah, uh, spiky is a uh, common motif. I have to say in this, um, uh, I'm just flipping through it right now. Um, you know, you brought up the layout uh, a minute ago, and I'm actually that is one of the things I'm curious about. Is uh, unlike the vast majority of the uh, game books, this is a landscape, uh, a horizontal layout. Um, whereas most game books are like a textbook where it's, you know, like an 8.5 by 11 or something like that. Um, what led to the, uh, uh, this decision to make it a, a, a landscape uh, layout? That was an old idea, actually. We, um, we had talked about it, like, very, very early on as something unique that we wanted to, to try out. Sam actually, I think, came to us independently with that idea, and we were like, man, yeah, we were already sort of like, fading in and out so anyway um it just seemed like uh a good approach to take for a book that was going to be very visual it's like widescreen tv in a way you know oh, okay. it's been received in two different ways some people love it some people don't love it um 
some people understand um, why we approached it the way we did. Um, we hear sort equipment. of like two different. Yeah, the equipment pages are a really good example of what um, mechanically that sort of wide layout allows you to do. Um, it may not be the easiest book to sit down in an easy chair and, and read, you know, and flip through, but when it comes to like sitting down at the table and playing the game, when you lay it down and it lays perfectly flat, you get like a big spread of, you know, a, a page of weapons or the, a lump of mechanics that you need to reference. It works really well. The most important thing, though, is that visually it, it lent itself to, you know, the artwork and those kinds of things. It's definitely like the panoramic versus television is how I kind of saw it. Like movie, movie screen versus television screen. With, with a lot of the landscape artwork in the book, it just looks a lot more impressive when you can stretch it out like that instead of trying to rotate on a traditional 8.5 by 11. You can just put a lot more on there visually. Yeah, we wanted to make sure that we had pictures for every single you know weapon, gun, and just the layout when you open it up to a nice double page of assault rifles. It just looks beautiful. <laughs> of course. This is a gaming book, so yeah. Uh, that goes without saying. Um, or guns with uh, spikes attached to them. Yes. It's yes. very critical for Alpha Omega. You, you don't want to be caught fighting uh, you know, a super fast creature and run out of ammo. You need yeah. to have that backup weapon. Yeah. Um, the undergrip serrated blade on a revolver, I can see through here. Um, yeah, yeah. Just don't I, put it down the front of your pants. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not yeah. exactly uh, something... Specialized holster required. <laughs> yeah. um, so one comment uh, about the... Um, one concern that... Well, <laughs> maybe I shouldn't say this, but we're going <laughs> to put a disclaimer on the core rulebook. Uh, the, the structural integrity of, uh, of the book was... Well, not realistically questioned, but someone uh, made a comment that they were worried that over an extended period of time that the landscape layout might, might lead to a, a weakening in the structural integrity of the book. So we want to put a disclaimer on there that, that clearly states that the Alpha Omega Core rulebook is not meant to be used as a grappling hook and or personal flotation device. It's, it's meant as a, a tomb of knowledge for use when playing the game, uh, you know, when it lays on a, a flat piece of furniture and... Know, or you put it in your book bag, but don't use it as a grappling hook. <laughs> you you so, could throw it. You could throw it at your friend, though. It's right, perfectly right. fine to do that. Um, are the uh, future supplements of Alpha Omega going to be laid out in the same way, or are you going to go to different formats for different books? Next will be right. a triangle. Yeah, <laughs> that's the idea. Yeah, the the creature manual for sure is going to be the exact same layout. Um, we love it so. All right. Uh, that's good. Uh, cool. Um, so tell me a little about, uh, obviously, uh, uh, every game company I've heard of always has the in-house game. Uh, what's been the latest uh, Alpha Omega game being played at Mindstorm Labs? Uh, oh, <laughs> Give us an well, anecdote I from the latest game, or one of the more recent ones. Um, well, I, I run a game pretty much the I would consider it the the Mindstorm Labs in-house game although since Tom's down south he has yet to really get in on <laughs> never <the> it. <laughs> yeah we just don't invite him no but um, uh, actually a bunch of the a bunch of the play testers um, play we play regularly um, I, I I GM uh, we're running a, a game that centers around the island city of Divinus and uh, the guy, I won't uh, use anybody's names in case anybody tries to find them, but um, <laughs> the, uh, the guys that are playing, there's, uh, it's a pretty eclectic group. So there's uh, an AI named MD45, who we often call MD5 and uh, sort of make fun of the little geek humor there. There's a Necrosi, um, who the guy who plays him really takes the the dark side, the dark and twisted side of the necrosi, you know, all the way. Um, there's a, uh, a wielder named Felonius who's sort of like the group's uh, level-headed uh, dude because everybody else on the team is out to try and twist me up as GM and um, make me make mistakes. And um, 
the one character who probably sticks out as the most twisted and anecdotally um, the easiest one to reference is uh, a guy named Winston the Knife who is played by one of, uh, one of our sort of like fundamental playtesters and uh, he's sort of roving the streets of Divinus while we're trying to run coherent adventures um, trying to sample genetic material from evolutionary species in the hopes that he'll be able to somehow make money off of it on the black market down the road. So that's kind of... Uh, the in-house game pushes the bounds of, well, everything, but it's uh, a good time. <laughs> All right. Um, so are there any particular infamous uh, stories that uh, your group has already been telling other people? The, you know, the one time I killed the dragon or the bad guy or whatever, or the the really bad critical failure or uh, what have you? Oh, yeah. The, the biggest one right now was, because, like, as, we, as we're playing, we're also, you know, playtesting new stuff, of course. So right. um, here's a, okay, Triton Enterprises uh, in the game world is a corporation who engineers creatures. And um, one of their, their new endeavors is a, is a the multi-headed dog of mythology Cerberus. I don't know if I ever pronounced that correctly. Anyway, um, so uh, I am not too sharp at uh, statistics, and uh, this is where Dave's game mechanics sort of come into play. And uh, the last session that we ran, I introduced the Triton Enterprises Cerberus defending a uh, sort of an underground drug production facility on one of the islands outside of Divinus, and um, Winston the Knife was obliterated by the dog in a couple of segments, and that's not at all what I had envisioned it. So I had to kind of fudge the scenario and, you know, just ca the dog just cast him off into the water, and uh, then it proceeded to maul everybody else involved until the brilliant AI MD-45, played by John, uh, employed knockout gas to sort of rescue the scenario. So anyway, the anecdote behind that is that right now, everything that I create statistically is broken. <laughs> uh, not exactly balanced uh, either. No, Two, yeah. yeah. But that's why we play. <laughs> All right. Um, sounds like a fun game. Uh, so, you know, as new designers, you know, this is your, I guess, your first major game. Um, what lessons would you, what advice would you give uh, uh, would-be game designers or scenario writers or people uh, wanting to work on uh, games? Well, all the regular cheesy stuff, like if you, uh, if you have an idea for a game that you think is solid and you'd love to play, then, then do it and don't quit. And as much even constructive criticism as you get, take it to, take it to heart. Um, don't always think that you're you're right, and uh, but also don't don't quit. You know, it's up to you. You got to get it done. No one's going to do it for you. So, I think that's actually probably the most important thing. It's funny because when we first started, and you know, we did. Uh, I think the the first interview I think was just me alone, and it was a phone interview. And and one of the first questions that they asked was like why would you, and, and it was like a legitimate and, you know, and good question, but basically it was like, why would you get into role-playing games? You know, it's, it's such a niche market, it's so difficult to be successful, you know, blah, 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 and really, like, if it's what you like to do, then that's reason enough. You know, I don't, you'll run into so much pessimism and so much, uh, negativity is maybe too strong a word, but it's true. Uh, you know, you just need to like get past that and and do what you want to do creatively because that's that's what will uh, that's what people will will look at afterward and embrace it or not embrace it. You know, and enough people hopefully will embrace it and you know you'll be happy and on your way. All right. Um, very good. Very wise. Uh, so, are, are there any uh, uh, um, plans right now to see Alpha Omega? in another format as another, you know, a spin-off game or what sort of uh, supplements, aside from the ones you've mentioned, um, might the fans be expecting uh, in the future? Anything on the drawing boards? 
Well, the creature manual is the big one. That'll, that's going to be uh, finished up around the end of August and, and going to print. Um, so for further Alpha Omega supplements, uh, the equipment manual is being is being uh, drafted right now. Um, we're getting a lot of help on that one um, by one of our beta testers. He's he's going to be writing a majority of that so that one's underway and we've kind of one of the the things we wanted to a theme running through our games are what does the community want so we've had a couple of posts on our <clears throat> community forums asking our players what supplements do you guys want to see next and uh, we've got a lot of, of feedback and um, so yeah we've got a, a course charted you know, Tom do you want to talk about like yeah, we've got uh, another thing we have coming out is our next module. Um, bro, correct me if I say this wrong, but the Larza Meteor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Larza Meteor. Yeah, that's our uh, next module. That'll be coming out pretty soon as well. That'll be just like Milk Run. That's going to be a free um, module available for players to download. Um, besides that, we really wanted to focus on getting what we with four books completed the, the core rulebook and the creature manual. But in terms of other mediums, we do have some things in the pipeline, and hopefully we'll be announcing some of those things in July. And so I guess I would say stay tuned. <laughs> any, uh, uh, of course, I guess I would ask you if you're going to have any more viral marketing campaigns like Ethan Haas, but if, if <laughs> That's you were... That's in a bottle. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But even if you um, weren't having one, you couldn't really tell us, could you? Because then that would spoil it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's it, viral marketing is is fascinating. It's um, I don't know if anybody really has a good. Well, I, I think the I think the the Dark Knight viral marketing campaign is has been pretty good, but you could also argue whether or not it needs promotion, you right. know, virally to to be successful. So, I, I think it's still one of those things. That's, it's interesting from a business perspective to look at it and say, how do you use it to promote a product? If you if that's what your intent is, how does it make money for you, and and how's the best way to implement it? So it's it's pretty fascinating. It really opened my eyes to the whole viral marketing from mm-hmm. from that from last summer. So, yeah, I, I guess the answer would be if if we do anything planned, uh, <laughs> we wouldn't be able to tell you. <laughs> look right. look for a strange package in the mail or something. <laughs> <laughs> All right, fair enough, fair enough. Um, well, last question. Uh, what are you, each of you, playing or reading right now, aside, obviously, from Alpha Omega? Uh, any type of game, any type of book or comic book, or uh, what's on your plate right now? Uh, we'll start with Earl. You want to go first? Oh, you want me to go first? Yeah. Okay. Um, I, uh, okay, I play Alpha Omega, of course. Um, unfortunately, that's pretty much the only RPG I get time to, to play these days. Um, man, I read... Right now, I'm reading a book about parenthood, because I'm a new dad. <laughs> so that's uh, kind of probably how, not that exciting. How to guide. <laughs> yeah, yeah, how to guide. Uh, but no, uh, probably one of the things that I read most uh, frequently now are uh, comics. Uh, I'm back into comics again, so I'm, re- I'm actually reading... After the whole Ethan Haas thing, where the the journal pages got called Lovecraftian, and you know, I was like, "Oh, awesome, man! I write like that sounds good." So uh, now I'm I'm reading some Cthulhu uh, comics that I've dug up and uh, boning up on my, my Cthulhu <laughs> mythology. All right, cool, cool. Um, I'm a big Lovecraft fan too. I've actually uh, um, big fan of Delta Green and Call of Cthulhu and all those games uh, as well. So. Uh, cool. Uh, Tom, what about you? Um, I've been reading um, a book by uh, Philip Dick called The Man in the High Castle. Oh, yeah, I've heard of that. Yeah, yeah it's, it's really interesting. It's, it's not like a lot of his other books, so it's, uh, it's kind of a neat take. It's sort of an sort of alternative history where mm-hmm. the, uh, what, what would have happened if the Axis powers had won World War II. Right, right. Kind of, kind of a neat book. Um, reading besides that, I read a lot of business books. Uh, I'm reading a book called um, Blue Ocean Strategy right now, which is which is a pretty neat book on uh, business strategy. Um, comic books. I'm I'm always in and out of comic books. I I love uh, X Men and uh, uh, 
I've always liked Iron Man. That's probably a little cliche, maybe, or something to say that this summer. But I've I've always liked him. So I've been well, looking. He at him is a the uh, uh, model capitalist. So I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm working on my suit. Uh, yeah. And games. Honestly, I haven't played a lot of games lately. Um, I uh, actually downloaded um, Fantasy Star 2 for my Wii the other week because I played <laughs> that right. when I was a kid and I loved it. And yeah. so I'm, I'm going back. <laughs> All right. Old Trying school is great. Game. I'm a big fan of retro gaming too. Um, uh, finally, David, uh, what about you? Uh, man, I'm not doing anything right now but working on the creature manual. I just eat, sleep, drink, <laughs> creature manual. Okay. Um, I try to calm down a bit uh, before bed by by reading. I've been just reading Rainbow Six, but that's had the opposite effect. You know, any of those counterterrorism books, not good before bed. <laughs> not exactly a calm, meditative uh, thing. Um, no. If I do get a free minute, I uh, I'm a big fan of the uh, Warhammer 40k uh, Dawn of War. Oh yeah. That's for PC. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I can see that. Um, yeah, okay, cool. Well, um, thanks a lot, guys. Uh, it's uh, good to hear from you. And uh, next time you have a, a new supplement or something else for Alpha Omega, uh, I'll give you guys a call back. Uh, look forward to seeing you at Gen Con, I guess. So, Wicked yeah, man. Def- we'll the see what? you then.